One of Ron Watkins' most satisfying design projects happened in 1999. That's when Ross and Sally Davies, farmers at Many Peaks near Albany, requested his services to help them deal with waterlogging on their farm. At the heart of the Davies farm was a big patch of carry forest. This forest had the capacity to carry incredible biodiversity and Ron's design, by focusing on controlling and capturing the water that came onto the property, naturally served to enhance the ecological development of this forest and connect the whole farm with wildlife corridors. Ron spent a very enjoyable period observing, surveying and test digging at many peaks. This required driving around on a quad bike with his surveying tools. He reckons it takes him an hour to survey one kilometre and an hour to test dig every 30 metres. The Davies accepted Ron's suggestions and spent the next 10 years implementing the plan whenever they could spare the money and time on the project. Ron's had the pleasure of seeing his integrated whole farm plan and the satisfaction of seeing the waterlogging problem fixed and the farm gain soil fertility and species diversity. On paper, the Many Peaks plans shows kilometres of drains snaking gently around the contours of the land. There are no straight lines. A series of interconnected meandering marks follow roads and natural creeks, either skirting around or soaking into features. The drains feed the tree belts that are planted alongside them and in turn link the land visually. It's possible to stand on many peaks and there might only be 10 or 20% vegetation with 80% open pasture, but feel like you're in the middle of bush as far as the eye can see. When Ron first started to apply himself to working out how water flowed in the landscape, he also had to learn to strike out on his own. The issue was around the clay layer. He explains, there are four ways water moves. It runs off, it becomes seepage on top of the clay layer where all the waterlogging problems happen. It moves through the clay or gets into the water table and eventually hits bedrock. Normally, analysis of waterlogging and attendant saline problems only look at the top two layers. Ron's instinct was to look deeper into the subject. To him it was logical that water found its way through the earth at all levels, but the farmers and consultants he was dealing with were not interested in his divergent views. He became convinced these blokes never looked deep enough. He had found variation in clay layers which went as deep as 1.2 metres on some land, but frustratingly found no support for his observations that it was often possible to observe wetness below the drains. In the late 70s, after a particularly frustrating session on a mate's farm, where he found himself to be a lone and unwelcome voice against the prevailing mindset, he went home and excavated a hole 6.5 metres deep. He then spent two days observing what the water did. It was clear. Water moved in at all levels, trickling through and exhibiting different qualities depending on its journey through the earth. His mentors and the mob of farmers he was working with saw and didn't see, but would not acknowledge the existence of such water. One of the elders, a man he held in high esteem, was with him for some of the time as he carried out these observations. It was one of the lowest points of Ron's life that this man refused to acknowledge what he had seen. One of Ron's oft-quoted phrases, there is never a person so blind as one who wills themselves not to see, might well have dated from this time. Suzanne, Ron's wife, remembers that Ron came out of that hole and said, as far as I'm concerned, they can go and rewrite the book. He was convinced of what he saw, 
but it was hard-won wisdom. It came with a sense of isolation that has never quite left him. He was on his own. Ron knew from his own experiments on Paynham Vale, his 550-odd hectare farm near Franklin River, east of Manjimup, that all land problems are multidimensional. There are no single issues. You have to look at energy, seasons, soil, water, air, plants, animals and human interactions. They're all part of the whole. The basis of his knowledge comes from P.A. Yeoman, an engineer who developed a way to create soil fertility by capturing water in the landscape via a system he called the Key Line Plan. The Key Line Plan, the book, came out in 1954. The man himself came by invitation to Paynham Vale Farm in the 70s and Ron got the benefit of an intensive tutorial on water harvesting techniques over five days. Ron took to heart PA's teaching. Land shape and the way water moves across the land is central to the way he reads landscape. Two of the main devices that feature in his farmland adaptations are the drains that are constructed in conjunction with tree belts, roughly following contours. The decision to use drain-tree combinations was a direct result of doing an environmental assessment using energy, soil, seasons, water, air, plants, animals and human impacts as the model for determining what practices would enhance the positive and negate the negative. Do these ideas work? Has Ron worked out a way to solve the problems of waterlogging and its handmade salinity that are an aspect of farming in the Great Southern? Yeah, he has. The Watkins farm has thrived in the 46 years since Ron and Sue took over as the main decision makers. And on a farm, he tells me, with scorn, that was considered too small to farm successfully. He did not heed the call to get big or get out, and is still farming, economically and ecologically sustainably, satisfied that he's fulfilled one of his main aims, to leave the land in better shape than when he inherited it. Ron tried to explain to me how he actually reads the landscape. Sue reckons it's instinctive. He has a feel for it. Maybe it's not something that can be taught, but he tried to give me an idea of the way he approaches problems in the landscape. There are some foundational far starting points. The shape of the land is one. There will be significant landscape features that he looks for that drive water movement, saddles, rock outcrops, areas that would be good for large storage sites, swampy zones, forests, just to name a few. Cruising around a paddock searching for calving cows, Ron points out some of the features that influence where he placed his drains and accompanying tree belts. He stops the car high in the paddock and tells me that we're in a saddle. It's barely discernible to me, a subtle dip, part of what PA would call a primary ridge, Ron explains. He points out sloping areas falling away from this primary ridge in other directions and calls them secondary ridges. We approach the top of the paddock and the fence that runs along the top of the ridge and divides his farm from the neighbour's land. Ron parts his hands. You can see up here we're right at the top of the ridge where is the water divide. All the water from this point here either goes this way or that way. And he points out this is the start of the catchment area and where we were yesterday up the top of the other hill is the other divide and between is the valley with the creek. It's all very logical. It's a fiercely windy day. We cruise around a contour close to the tree belt, loving the sheltering calmness. He points out high and low points, that where he wanted to put a dam actually coincided with a key point, meaning that you've got a steeper slope above it 
and in the next paddock it levels out. All the elements fitted together beautifully. The key point is a place in the land shape nominated by P.A. Yeoman. It is what he built his ideas on. But Ron kept asking further. He asked the question, if you don't have any other key points, which is true of his land, what do you build your design from? When P.A. visited, Ron's desire was to learn how to harvest water that could be used as irrigation and fed into projects close to the houses. P.A. Yeomans designed the Contour Dam, a 240-metre dam with a capacity of 30,000 cubic metres. This is three drains lower in the landscape from the place where, where we're standing and is fed from the top of the catchment area. When the contour dam went in, Ron knew he had to plant trees along the drains to protect the system above the dam. Rather than cascading down the hill, the water that falls on the land, after an initial short downhill rush, is directed sideways into a series of connecting drains, so it moves down the slope like the silver marble in a pinball machine. The contour dam has an overflow end that ultimately means that excess water from a big rain event is directed down to the creek that runs along the valley floor past the hay shed near the house. Because the high dam at his place is 16 metres higher than the main house, Ron can gravity feed water into the outside house taps and toilets, meaning his windmill has long been made redundant. Standing on a steepish slope, Ron says the average speed that the water would run here would be 1 in 15, that's 1 metre every 15 metres. So when rain hits the ground, it runs into the first drain at 1 in 15, but only for the first 100 metres. Then when it strikes the drain, it runs at 1 metre every 300, even 400 metres. So the water is being impeded by the earthworks. It is slowing right down. You can move a lot of water slowly, but you can't move much water fast without causing erosion, Ron says. So apart from the initial rush, it's all under control. You can imagine in a fierce thunderstorm, if there weren't drains and tree belts, the water would just sheet down the hill. Now, no water let loose from the top of the catchment can do more than wander down the hill while being impeded by trees and drains. And the trees alone would not be enough to slow the water down. The drains and the contours are essential aspects of the whole system. According to Ron, the most efficient use of water is using it where it falls. The tree belts are all fenced off to stocks, so the ground in these enclosures is springy with moisture, captured by roots and held by soil surfaces rich with leaf litter, undergrowth, twigs and other debris. The next stop Ron would like to implement is the planting of perennial grasses, so the continuous deep root action could act to use all the water between the tree belts to turn the open paddocks, as well as the fenced-off riparian and tree belts, into a giant green sponges. From this high point, the contour layout creates a sense that you're looking out over dense bush. The sense of beauty and natural diversity is as rare as it is refreshing in the middle of a farming zone. Ron is not necessarily wrapped with the species selection planted in the tree belts along the drains. Fashion at the time di dictated bluegums as a good species, but the wood twists and warps when sawn, so they're only good as paper pulp instead of the promised high-grade building timber. In future, plantings would be fine-tuned. The tree zones are a breeding ground for insects and birds and create pathways for birds and other critters to the zones, the fenced-off remnant bush. 
Rather than being a pleasant or separate add-on, the wildlife corridors are an essential result and outcome of the water control system. This is integrated whole farm planning in action, true holistic planning that works with nature. Over the week I spent at the farm, Ron tells several stories. One of him involves sitting on the edge of a bit of bush on the farm and observing a couple of hornets dragging a cutworm into the tree belt. A study done by scientists in the USA stuck in his mind. Did I know that a pair of swallows eat 980 insects a day? Why would you use insecticides? Even a predator-friendly one, Ron added with a grin. Sue had to explain that one to me. Apparently this is a claim written on the side of a container of a commonly used insecticide. He has neighbours growing canola. Sometimes they spray up to six times on a single crop in a season. So susceptible are, are the plants to pest action. We pass another dam, lowering the landscape as we continue to sweep the paddock, looking for birthing cows. This one, Ron explains, has a five-to-one storage ratio, meaning he was able to get 25,000 cubic metres of water storage for 5,000 metres of dirt shifted. He fed this dam, he explains, using several ridges, ridges and built it to an L-shape in response to the landform, knowing exactly where the water would want to overflow and channelling the excess again down the valley. To have a finely judged understanding of how water moves across the land and to be able to slow volume and pace through the biggest rain events is also to save huge amounts of money when it comes to constructing earthworks. Shifting dirt is a costly business, so it's a great idea to have a handle on the numbers and an idea of what the conditions are likely to deliver your land. You build what you have to build, adding to the overall design as you can afford to do it. Land and water is obviously where the pain and Vale farm income has been directed for the years Ron and Sue have been in charge. The house is modest, the equipment of a vintage that Ron can maintain himself. The land itself sings with the love and care put into it by its custodians. It's not rocket science, Ron sighs, not for the first time. It's logical. But like most profoundly good design, it takes complex reasoning within a framework of understanding, in this case, how water moves across a landscape, to get it right. Ron has a strong belief that nature makes sense. It's just beyond the capacity of most human beings to discern, in the face of such complexity, how everything functions together. So it gets labelled chaos, without understanding the intricately fitted pieces that make up the whole. The way Ron talks about farm design makes it appear to be an act of creative uncovering. The design falls naturally and beautifully into place when he's noted all the features that count. This to him is a reflection of the beauty of God's work and a large part of the inspiration that drives his life as a farmer. I'm amazed by the elegant solutions Ron has created to ensure effective water harvesting. He started thinking about water when he and his wife Sue took over the running of the farm in 1973. His ideas have been honed over decades of practical application. Ron's first challenge of landscape, as PA would say, was to work out why his mother's citrus trees were dying. The culprit turned out to be growing salinity in the dam near the house. Ron also knew from his mother's lifelong connection to this land that the creek that winds through the valley near the house used to harbour a network of freshwater swamp paper barks. It was clear that unless something was done, the whole farm would be lost to the curse of salt. 
Salinity is a problem of too much water in the landscape. In the dupex soils common to the ag areas, sand or loam sits on clay. If salt appears, the analogy is that the bath is full, the drains are blocked and water is given the time to seep from below the clay layer to draw up the salt beneath that lies in the earth. His challenge was to capture all the water that fell on the property and use it to grow trees, enliven the soil and to produce more from the natural environment without degrading or mining it. He began by using the statistics in common use for rainfall in his area. On average, 3 million cubic metres of rain could be expected to fall every year on his property. According to the Department of Ag figures, 10% of this will be runoff, which means it varies between 0 to 20%. He decided he was going to harvest that 10%, which amounts to 300,000 cubic metres of water, and he built a dam to match the number. He was the subject of some mirth in the district. How long do you reckon it will take to fill that one, Ron? A neighbour asked. I reckon I should be able to do it every year, given an average amount of rain, he responded calmly, and proved the notion. He notes with somewhat grim satisfaction that people are now creating much bigger dams in the district. On economic, ecological and spiritual grounds, Payne and Vale is a property that should be used as a test case for regenerative farming across the globe. In terms of biodiversity, carbon capture, the capacity of the land to hold water, the Watkins have developed a farm that is as climate change resilient as it is possible to be. I spent a week helping out with the eggs across the four free-range mobile modules housing something like 1,400 chickens. Ron and Sue are flat out with a daily regime of collecting, cleaning and packing eggs. Plus, every week involves moving one or more of the enclosures onto the next part of the paddock so the chickens can get new green pick and the paddocks get a dung scratch and debug makeover, prepping the paddocks. The eggs are a main income, but the chickens give so much more than that. They're an integral part of the cropping program. When I arrive to do my home help thing, it is the start of June and the rains have come. I just miss the olive harvest and the cropping program is ready to begin. These plantings will provide grain and hay for their stock for the next 12 months. As well as prepping acres for planting, there's also the necessity of keeping hay up to the herd of 50-odd cows who are all busily producing calves. The few hundred sheep they have are relatively easy to take care of. The Watkins have taken to running wilty poles, a type of meat sheep that don't need shearing. This farm is really broadacre permaculture. Imagine what could be achieved with spare capital and workers. One of his water capture plans encompasses a vision to have fish dams. I start throwing my own ideas into the mix. I'd been inspired by the big chipper Stuart and Bee operate on their organic pharmacy in Nanup. It's used to munch up animal and green waste as part of their composting program. Gruesome, but imagine the nutrient-rich compost and compost teas that could be produced using chicken waste, including the actual bodies of the chickens when they've reached their use-by date as egg producers. The big advantage on a broadacre farm over a smaller block is, of course, the availability of easy access, flat land and tractors with handy hydraulic appliances on the front that could be used to combine and turn big piles of stuff. Ron, with an already enormous workload, currently buys in organic biological fertilisers and various additives he has found enhances the growing power of his soil. He greets my idea with a weary smile. Ron is also in demand to advise people on water and land issues. 
He talks wistfully of time he would have loved to spend with Joel Saladin, a US farmer, the inventor of polyface farming, who's been inspiring mixed farm food growing efforts around the world. He loved Joel's workshop, but was convinced his landscape design ideas didn't go deep enough when it came to initial considerations about farm planning to do with water control from areas on and outside the boundaries of the land being considered. Sundays is a day the Watkins try to do as little as possible. It's a time to worship and a time to relax. And both are looking ahead to retirement. Sue has patchwork quilts to make and arts and crafts in mind. Ron has his eye on a smaller property in a chain of dams near Albany. I reckon that with his gift of the gab, his sonorous voice and knowledge, he should become the high priest of regenerative environmental development, spreading the good news from pulpits across the land. We'll see what happens. <laughs>